I'm Chaplain Jacob Scott of the Oregon National Guard. This is the Hope in the Trenches podcast. We're going forward. I'll sit down for conversations with people who offer interesting and informative perspectives on finding strength for life and work in the trenches and even improving our spiritual posture. Whether you feel like you're under heavy bombardment or ready to go over the top toward a new objective, it's good to be with you. My guest today is Eddie Black. Eddie recently retired from the Oregon Army National Guard as a Sergeant First Class, and he, now he works for the Center for Deployment Psychology. Thanks for being here today, Eddie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell me about how you, how you got, well, we talked on the car ride up here, we talked a little bit about your, or, kind of your origin story. So tell me how you ended up working for the Center for Deployment Psychology. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I've always been interested in psychology. It's one of the things that uh, left me to leave the Marine Corps with psychology and study that and, and go into college. And I became particularly interested in positive psychology. And over the years of being in the Army National Guard and doing civilian jobs, I've done a lot of work with helping homeless veterans or veterans with PTSD or things like that with Joint Transition Assistance Program, uh, and, and then which led me to being one of the candidates people for the resiliency program uh, when it started up here in Oregon, and I worked hand-in-hand with the suicide prevention uh, program as it was in its early days and such. And then when they brought the program, the Star Behavioral Health Provider Program, to Oregon, my name was just one of the names that everybody knew. Like, if you're going to do this sort of stuff, Ed's the guy to go talk to. So I just kind of like, uh, just kind of like fell into my lap. I'm very grateful for it. And uh, that's, that's the short answer. Sure, sure. Well, the first time I met you was 2013. It was at a Yellow Ribbon event when we were we were getting ready to prepare to deploy to Afghanistan. And my first thought, uh, as you were giving a resiliency briefing to a group of soldiers and families, my first thought was, here, the Army has done something right. We've got the right person in the right job teaching a subject that he's passionate about and trying to make a difference in the lives of, of soldiers. Um, and so that was that was how I first came to know who Eddie Black was. And so you've been working with the Army's resiliency program for more than 10 years. And the basis for that program is positive psychology. And it was developed at the beginning of, of the program. It was developed by Pencil- the University of Pennsylvania, by Penn, uh, where Martin Seligman developed or, or grew the field of positive psychology. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what is positive psychology? Um, positive psychology, as the psychologists in the field have lamented, they they could have done a better job naming it because we spend half our time trying to explain why it's called positive psychology. We just should have just named something else. But if you look at a bell curve, um, like a, a big hill, if you don't know what a bell curve is, just a, it's a big hill. And if you label your axes on there, to the left of that, you know, human flourishing, human, um, what, how are you right now? And to the left of that is less than good. <laughs> and so that may be, you know, depression, it may be suicidality, it may be alcoholism, it's something. And psychology for the longest time has been concerned with how to move people from the left of that curve to back to normal. Normal is just the most often seen instance of something within a population. So the normal person doesn't drink 10 beers a day. Uh, So that sort of thing. Seligman and and others were looking at, well, we've ignored the right side of that. 
the the positive side, not so much positive as in let's all be happy and rainbows and unicorns, but the positive side of that, what is it that makes people flourishing? Uh, what 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 leads to a, a satisfying, happy life? We don't know. Psychology hasn't studied that. We've studied depression and how to get that out of you, but what it makes people happy will define happiness. So that's positive psychology right there. And I became very interested in that because that matched very well with my Marine Corps history uh, and the military in general, is which is a strengths-based um, organization. I still think that the Army's best recruiting slogan ever was be all you can be. If you remember that back oh, in the, uh, was it the 70s? I remember the jingle. <laughs> the no, that was, that was right in my wheelhouse, probably the 80s. Yeah. yeah. That's what appealed to me in the Marine Corps was be your best. That's what appealed to me in psychology was that aspect. And so I've been interested in studying that for a while and the Army brought it along and it, it, to me it just makes sense. You know, this is Army training. This isn't you know, I don't know, psychology training. This is just, I want good soldiers. I want soldiers that are the best at their game. I want soldiers that are the best shooters, the best infantry soldiers, the best Apache pilots, the best surgeons. I want the best. Right. Why, why else are you in the Army? Well, this was coming right on the the heels of the surge in Iraq. And, of course, the war in Afghanistan was still going on. And so we, we wanted soldiers, we wanted people who were strong and able to endure the rigors of combat. Mm-hmm. The, the, man, that's a whole other can, can of worms right there, the rigors of combat. That's a different cultural aspect of it that a lot of civilians don't understand. Um, as, a, as a funny note, uh, I... I Something that a lot of people may or may not know is that I've given three to four hundred pro bono trainings around the state that are just my own trainings, uh, primarily to police departments uh, who want to understand, like, what do I need to know about military? It's three o'clock in the morning. I'm knocking on this guy's house. Mm-hmm. What do I need to know? Uh, and so I go train them. In fact, I got two trainings in the first week of May that I'm going, the opposite ends of the state. Um, but people, whether it's uh, a lawyer convention or it's uh, students or people at a school, administrators, whatever, they want to understand this military culture. And, and sometimes I only have five minutes to sum it up for them. And so one of the things that I've done in the past is I would play the opening scenes to Saving Private Ryan when they're assaulting Omaha Beach. And while they're playing this, I had a room full of psychologists, and psychology typically is, how do we look at depression and fix this depression from you? Mm-hmm. They don't understand this mindset um, that, that is necessary for, for the military. And, and I would play this scene, this you know horrible scene. I mean, if you watch this only scene, it doesn't move you. I don't know what to say. Um, and then I would walk around the room full of psychologists, and I would look at them and like, okay, tell me how you feel. Do you feel these emotions right now? Let's just sit with that emotion for a second. These are the things that you hear in therapy. I've, I did therapy for two years. Uh, if it wasn't for therapy, I would either be dead or in prison right now. I'm not exaggerating. Um, but I would say you can't, you can't have that same approach. I don't need somebody that is, can write you a poem to go assault the Nazis. I need somebody that can button that down and then go forward and like, you just got shot? Well, pfft stick some dirt in it, and keep going because we have to beat the Nazis. That mindset is completely absent in civilian world today. They do not understand that mindset. 
The problem with this mindset is that if it's only that, if that's all there is to it, which is typically what a lot of our military training is, then that same individual cannot go and sit and watch his children play softball. It's impossible. He, he, is, he is distracted. He's distanced. He doesn't trust everybody. Who's that person over there? Why is this person passing by all the time watching the kids? What are they up to? There could be a bomb over there. Oh, does somebody slight me with that look? I should probably fight them. They can't do it. They're, they're sleeping with weapons under their – I've got – 10 weapons at home. I'm not anti-weapon, but they're sleeping with weapons under the pillows. They can't connect to other people. You're going to have a good marriage where you can't be vulnerable with your wife? That's not a marriage. That's a partnership in a business. Who wants that? So there's this huge missing component, and, and this resiliency training, this strengths-based training doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't say, hey, let's be softer, kinder, gentler soldiers because that's what we need. It says, no, if you want to be stronger, you have to train hard. But just because you have emotions doesn't mean you're weak. That is not it at all. Emotions are great. Here's how, we, here's how we do this. And all those skills and traits that make you – successful in combat or just just allow you to survive in combat the hypervigilance or the attention to detail the um, the the ability to not just uh, get ready but to stay ready right uh, that doesn't always translate well to life in the civilian world if if, if you're if you're sitting uh, under an umbrella at Starbucks drinking drinking your uh, frappuccino right oh not at all. <laughs> In fact, not even close. I used to play a game with psychology, and I, and I love psychology. I love psychologists, and I know a lot of researchers, and they are some of the most amazing, intellectual, smart, caring people out there. But I challenge all of them. I used to take the, the DS, we're on DSM-5 now, but I used to take the criteria for DSM-3. This is how long I've been doing this. This is the Diagnostic and Statistical, Statistical Manual. Manual. That Basically, it's the book use. of crazy. <laughs> It'll tell you every way you're crazy, but nowhere in the DSM is how you're amazing. We don't have that manual. Seligman and others at UPenn tried to create that. It's called the uh, the VIA, the Virtues in Action, Strengths-Based uh, Approach. And we have that. When we take the GATT, that's what you get. Uh, it's, the DS, it's the opposite of the DSM. The GATT, the Global Assessment Global Assessment tool. Test, which used to be not so bad, and now it's bad. <laughs> it's, huh. it's, it's, they added a lot of stuff to it, but you know it's better than nothing. Uh, but this, I used to challenge them. I would show them the... The criteria for PTSD, straight out of the manual, and I would say, all right, all these things, hypervigilance, I want my soldiers hypervigilance. We're surrounded by bad guys. Quick to anger. I want my soldiers quick to anger because we're surrounded by bad guys, and you may have half a second before you, you've lost your chance for action. I, uh, inability to sleep. I need that. Uh, lack of focus. They've always called me out on that. They say, why is lack of focus a good thing? I say, well, define focus. It's when you look at one thing and you forget everything else. We say keep your head on a swivel. Right. That is the opposite of focus. Right. You cannot do both at the same time. The more you focus, the less you have situational awareness and vice versa. Uh, when you go into some of the um, – uh, as people get excited with the fight or fight or freeze um, mechanisms or something like that, you get what's called tunnel vision. It just happens after your heart rate gets a certain level. All these things work. You can't tell me just by a soldier that is being an outstanding soldier in theater in a combat zone, you cannot distinguish based on this criteria who has PTSD or who is a great soldier. Can't. They look the same. And then 
consequently, when you take soldiers that have PTSD here and you send them back to combat, symptoms go away for a lot of them. They can sleep. They can do all sorts of stuff. And you bring them back here, all of a sudden they're fish out of water. The Army used to have this wonderful program, uh, this system called Battle Mind. And it was an acronym because, you know, the Army. You can't do anything without an acronym. Uh, it was amazing, developed by Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And uh, it basically said that, that all these things that you learned as a soldier, the quick reaction, uh, uh, trust nobody, you know, only trust your battle buddy, uh, be prepared, have a plan, all this other stuff. Those things work great when you're, you know, outside the green zone in Iraq. Or they don't work so good when you are a member of, you know, say your kid's PTA group at your school. And somebody you, you don't trust other people, and you're quick to anger, and you're secretive, and you don't say what you're you're intending to do, and you're lethally armed, and you're going to brandish your. Le- we have a lot of veterans that are in trouble for brandishing weapons, uh, all sorts of stuff. It doesn't ma- it doesn't work because the context is 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 the same. Absolutely, what's what's persuasive in one environment mm-hmm. is criminal in another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I could rep on that forever. <laughs> <laughs> So you, so you mentioned virtue in action uh, mm-hmm. and the, the via uh, – it's a character assessment, right? There's a, there's a via t- a traits analysis. There's a, you, can, you can take an online, um, mm-hmm. an, an online inventory that will help you kind of measure and look at some of your character strengths. And, and one of those is, is hope. Um, and we talked about this the other day. Um, well, and hope is – Positive, positive psychologists will talk about hope as something of a, a future orientation or expecting something better in the future and being willing to work toward it. And in the in the via uh, realm, they place that in. Uh, there's a there's a tr- trans transcendent uh, aspect to that. There's hope is placed in something that's outside of of you uh, and and able to transcend your present circumstances. When we were talking the other day, uh, you said when you were working at Joint Force Headquarters, you had a sign in your office, drag the dog over the wall 20 times. <laughs> I had a lot of signs in my office. Uh, people didn't understand many of them. But yes, that was one of them. the sayings on my big whiteboard was drag the dog over 20 times. Um, Martin Seligman, this was the last time that he did studies on animals. Uh, after this, he quit doing it. He he would do virtual studies or things in computers and simulations. And this is the last time he ever worked with animals. But he did a study in 60, 1968 uh, where basically you, you have this shallow pen with a, uh, well, a pen with a, uh, a small wall going halfway down the middle of it. And the bottom of the pen had electric floors, metal floors. And you put a dog on side A. And there were random shocks to the door, and dogs didn't like it. I mean, nobody likes to sit on the. And so the dogs would bark and yelp and jump and things like that, and just sometimes by chance, like, jump over the wall, like, because they just want to get out of this environment. It didn't take long for those dogs to learn, hey, just jump over the wall. Boom, easy. And they learned quickly. Uh, We learned how to avoid things pretty easy. Um, that's half our nervous system right there, how to avoid the uncomfortable. behavior. We are very good at avoidance. Uh, Well, he had another group of dogs where he tied them down to where they couldn't leave. And so they would yelp, they would groan, they would make a mess on the floor, all sorts of stuff. 
uh, but repeatedly they're getting repeatedly, shots. Just just randomly too. There was no pattern to it, so it was it was random. Unpredictable. Unpredictable. And the dogs didn't like it. Well, when he unchained those dogs and fastened them to where they could move, um, so a lot of them were able to figure it out. They would like I can move now. They would jump over the wall by random and they would learn. However, there was a, a a group of those dogs, like a third. I had to go look at the uh, study. I read it every couple of years. I think it around a third that didn't know that. They they had learned that there's nothing they can do to change their situation. And so even though they were no longer tied down, they would just lay there and, and whine and just yelp. Just take it. Just take it uh, all the time. And so the researchers were like, well, can we teach them? <laughs> and they would like, hey, look, buddy. And they'd drag them over the wall and they wouldn't learn. They would drag them over the wall again and they still wouldn't learn. And he writes... In, in, the, in the research article, if you read it, it says it took them on average to drag the dog over 20 times before it finally clicked. Like until then, it, was, it felt like you're wasting your time. Dog just didn't even understand it. But 20 times, so it clicked. They got it. They just like all of a sudden they comprehended, hey, I can jump over this wall and get away from the electric shock. But prior to that, that's, that's the phenomenon that psychologists have labeled learned helplessness. Yes, Right, that that idea that uh, I'm not going to be able to stop the bad things from coming, and all I can do is just sit here and take it. Well, not only, not only stop it, but you have you have zero power. And if you want to see a, a real world example of this, go talk to a veteran that has um, a claim at the VA. Mm. Because uh, that was half my job right there, talking to veteran Bob, who's submitted a claim to the VA and hasn't heard anything. And the when I was doing this, the average wait time was 18 months, and and a lot of veterans just give up by that time. They uh, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing. There's no way that I can impact the system. I can't mm-hmm. make it go fast. There's nobody I can call to yell at. Nothing I can do whatsoever. Why keep going? This learned helplessness. Sure, and you see that maybe in employment searches too. Mm-hmm. I've, I've applied for 20 different jobs. Nothing has worked out. Mm-hmm. That idea, drag the dog over the wall 20 times. What's the, what do, what's the import of that? So what did, you, what did you want people to take away or to understand well, with, that, with that idea? To quote the great Eddie Murphy from Vampire in Brooklyn, evil is more powerful than good. Evil is good. That's <laughs> uh, uh, a joke, but it's seriousness. There is a, there's a researcher, and I am drawing a blank right now. I'm so embarrassed, but looking at positive and negative effects, negative things have more of an impact on you than positive. For example, if you find a twenty dollar bill, right, and you, the positive impact of that is say a ten. If you lose a twenty dollar bill, the negative impact is that is a negative forty. Negative things happen to us by our design, are much more impactful. And in, in, this, in relationships, the same thing. One bad word to your spouse has more of an impact than one good word to your spouse. In fact, the ratio is one to five. It's more memorable. And we see this in the words that we use for emotions yes. too, right? We have uh, countless different words to describe negative emotions, mm-hmm. but far, far fewer, or at least that we're able to recall. For a lot of people, yes. That's what one of our uh, um, exercises in MRT school is uh, to list out all the words you can think of that's positive and negative. And generally speaking, people can – I can tell you 10 different ways of being angry. Okay, give me 10 different you know, synonyms for happy. Um, happy? <laughs> right. you know, people are harder with that. And you know, as we're talking in the car on the way up here, you know, how we read is how we talk. Well, 
these are our thoughts, and our common thoughts bring out our, our basic emotions. I mean, the Stoics would carry this little book that they could call the Introdion, which is basically a list of proverbs and Epictetus, right? Epictetus, yes. Uh, and they would just pop it open, and you would look at this little this little phrase and you know a little proverbs and stuff like that. And this, they would just keep planting these positive things in their mind because they recognized that the mind had an impact on on their emotions, mm-hmm. and so they would do this often. Um, what was your question about earlier? I know there's a question there somewhere we had to go about. Well, on, a, on a side note, I, I've given away countless copies of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. I, I love Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. I, I read that often. Which were his his private journals mm-hmm. as he contemplated some of those ideas expressed by philosophers like Epictetus. Yes, he wasn't writing that for other people. He was writing no. that to himself. That was his morning journal. He would get on like – you know, imagine him saying, writing down, okay, Marcus, don't forget, people are pretty dumb and they're selfish and they're mm-hmm. going to be crass with you and they're going to be short-tempered. Don't worry about that, Marcus. All right? Just keep your eye on the prize. Keep being your best self and things like that. That's why he was writing. Mm-hmm. He just didn't put his name in there often, but he was writing to himself to remind himself of his higher, his higher self, what he wanted to be. Self-awareness is hard to get to. <laughs> Let me know when you get there. I'm, some, I'm still looking. <laughs> some deliberate cultivation. Yes. So uh, we were talking about that that phrase and kind of what's what's the import for people uh, in that idea of dragging the dog over the wall. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I remember that now. <laughs> um, the import of that is, I mean, I've been working with soldiers for for a long time. I joined the Army National Guard in 2004, prior Marine before that and such, and. I've been working with a lot of different programs, helping veterans, one program or another. And it's sometimes the case, I've seen this more often than not, where let's say I got a private, private first class. Private first class needs a job. Okay, cool. Here's Here, private Snuffy, here is the job source. Go get it. <laughs> here you go. Hey, Sergeant Black, did you take care of private? Yep, I gave him the resource. My work here is done. And instead, that private snuffy may be feeling a lot of self-doubt, maybe feeling that, you know what, this is what you said earlier. This is the 20th job that I applied for. It will not matter if I apply the 21. Uh, There's nothing that I can do to change my my, uh, situation in life. You know, my wife thinks I'm a failure. My family thinks I'm a failure. I think I'm a failure. Why even bother trying? Mm -hmm. But yet I'm able to write it off for me because I gave him one little pamphlet to go find a job. Sergeant Black did his job. I can just leave it over. So I have to remind people all the time uh, is that sometimes people need to be dragged over more than 20 times. I have to call on him repeatedly. Uh, Every two days or three days or every day, depending upon, and say, hey, have you done that job yet? I will come pick you up and I will drive you there. And over and over and over again. Um, and over time, they it starts to dawn on them that, okay, they're not worthless. They're not, you know, through this alone, they can impact their life. Uh, it's not not just jobs, it's other things too. I've, I've had veterans call me and said they're they're leaving. They're going to kill themselves. Or they're going to go live out. I had one in Southern Oregon, and I'm going to go out and live in the, the wilderness. You'll never see me again. I just mm-hmm. want to call and say bye because you're always nice to me. And I'd keep them on the phone and talk to them. And I had a, a check-in with them every day. I'm going to tell you, I want you to tell me the worst, most non-PC, dirtiest joke you can think of every day. I need one. <laughs> That's it. That's all we're doing. I'm not going to tell you how to fix your life or nothing. I just need a bad joke. 
And he would. And then we sometimes it was just that, or sometimes we'd talk. But that daily contact with him was dragging him over the wall, that he mattered as a person. I needed to hear from him. And over finally being dragged over, it started to dawn on him. And he actually went and got a job as a janitor at Walmart. How many veterans you know that came back from deployment would go willingly seek that job? That's right. beneath them. Right. You know, that's not important. But yet all, he found himself after three months, four months of talking to him nearly every day, excited about this job. And I remember him telling me on the phone, this is going to be the best damn bathrooms you've ever seen in any Walmart. And that's why I tell employers all the time. I was like, that is the heart of our military right there. We don't do good enough because good enough just gets people killed. We do our best. That's a different thing. Right, right. And he ended up making manager because the work ethic that he brought, they said, we're going to hire you. We're going to promote you. He became a manager. Then he called me up like a couple months later, like, I bought a truck. It's, broke. it's a used truck, but I love this truck. I'm a manager. I got this and this. I'm putting a down payment on a house here soon. It's like all this stuff is possible because, you know, somebody believed in me and mm-hmm. just didn't let me go. I'm mm-hmm. like, you did all this stuff, man. You did it. I can't fix your life. I can just tell you how much I care about you. That's all I did. So he's, he's amazing. You know, and he's not the only story. I've got other stories just like that. But it comes to that you have to drag them over 20 times. You have to compete, completely check in with them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Sergeant Major Foch um, told me a story. It was years ago, not years ago, but a couple of years ago. We were in a meeting talking about the um, APFT rates and soldiers and things like that. Right. And the National Guard, the reserves, the active duty component, everybody is having a problem with obesity. Even the active duty Marine Corps, holy cow. Um, hmm. But the National Guard, as expected, you know, is slightly worse with this than the active duty services because— It's still probably slightly better than the general population. Oh, absolutely. It is right. better in population, but we're worse, be, and, and and that's because we have a harder job. You know, prior to active duty, I used to look down on reserves, but <laughs> not now. Mm-hmm. It's harder. You, you have to do your military training and civilian training— Without the, the umbrella of the government base that you're living on, it's hard. And no one's going to make sure that you're Nobody. doing PT every morning. Your, your squad leader doesn't live down the hallway from you in the barracks. <laughs> right, right. He, he may live, you know, four counties over. But Sergeant Major Foes told me, I, th- I believe it was Oklahoma, how they made a great improvement on their uh, uh, the, the APFT scores and obesity rates within the Guard. And it came down to one thing, daily check-ins by squad leaders and team leaders which is what I've been harping on for years. Uh, whenever we talk about whatever it is that you know is affecting our young soldiers and stuff like that, I always say team leader. And those actions of those team leaders are responsibility of that squad leader. And those squad leaders are, are under my responsibility as a platoon sergeant. I need to double check and make sure my team leaders are calling soldiers every whatever, at least once a week, but some soldiers need it every day. And mm-hmm. that may sound like an exaggeration, but I sat in... And uh, one of my soldiers' um, kitchen at 3 o'clock in the morning one night because he was suicidal and he was drunk and he'd pass out and wake up and pass out and wake up trying to talk to his mom and help his mom understand where he's going at and coordinating services. I've been on phone calls with police departments trying to find missing soldiers, uh, on, and these are not drill weekends. <laughs> right. right. Uh, it, and so some people need these daily things. I have needed these. I have been there. Uh, I have been in the in the same situations as some of these young soldiers. So anybody that says that this this younger generation just need to toughen up, you're forgetting your own life. <laughs> mm-hmm. You were this person earlier. If it wasn't for someone else that looked after you, chances are you wouldn't be here. We're not in this alone. You have to do this together. 
Absolutely. There's a, a book that I like to share with chaplains. Uh, Henri Nguyen, a Belgian Catholic priest, uh, wrote extensively at the, the end of the last century, back in the 1900s. And he, but he wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. And in that book, he tells a story. He was working as a hospital chaplain and told a story about uh, a man who died on the operating table. And the, 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 the title of that section is called um, How to Talk to a Hopeless Man, something like that. I probably got it slightly off. But the whole point of that chapter is that he, this man that died on the operating table didn't believe that there was someone waiting for him tomorrow. And that for a person who is experiencing despair or hopelessness or can't see anything in the circumstances around them that is is worth grabbing onto, they need someone uh, to sort of pull them through to tomorrow. That's what I thought about when you told the story about the veteran who whom you asked, that, hey, just call, call me and tell me a dirty joke every day, right? So that, that guy had something to, to latch onto for tomorrow. He, he knew that, that, that you were there for him, as difficult as today is, um, which is, which is a, a, I think, illustrates the, just the power of hope and, and where, where we can find that. So about eight years ago, you recorded a, a video on suicide prevention. And I think you uh, – maybe uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the analogy that you used with the uh, hot chocolate, a, a cup of hot chocolate, I think uh, has has some analogy to that. T- t- tell us about that video or at least what, what do you mean about giving, giving somebody a cup of hot chocolate? Well, I, I'd, I'd gone to – Peck, uh, professional education center, whatever yeah, it was down it in called? Little Rock, Arkansas, Little Rock. where the National Guard does a lot of training. The Army National yes. Guard does a lot of training. Uh, the resiliency and suicide prevention coordinators from all the different states and territories went there for a conference one year, and I went, and we talked about suicide prevention. And I was very outspoken against our suicide prevention efforts. Um, I, I, I've. I've, as somebody who's talked to more than a few uh, suicidal people, veteran and non-veteran and, and such, and been suicidal myself, uh, I often ask the question, we spend X million dollars on a suicide prevention, but why is it done? Uh, and, and when we give our suicide prevention videos in class, I often will turn around and I'll watch the soldiers watch the video, and 90 out of 100 are tuned out. It doesn't speak to us. And the videos, as I was talking about earlier about the negative side of psychology, let's fix the the broken, none of it was strengths-based. I haven't seen a strengths-based suicide prevention video, but we're a strengths-based culture. And a negative or an aspect of a strengths-based culture is that if you emphasize weakness, you're going to be ignored. Because that's not our, our warrior ethos. I will never quit. I will never surrender. I will never leave a fallen comrade. So how are you going to approach us with a negative base, how you're broken, let me fix you sort of culture? And uh, at the very least, if I don't want to let anyone know that I'm broken because then right. I will be perceived as weak. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is our culture right there. Uh, I, that is one of the biggest questions that I get asked by government agencies and such. Like, we want to have these veterans, but they won't take help. I'm like, you can't go ask them if they need help. Instead, you go to that veteran on the corner, that homeless veteran on the corner, and you say, hey, I'm not here to help you, but can you give me some insight or show me some things that will allow us together go help those homeless veterans over there? That veteran will sign up. 
They will help you all day long. They will do everything they can to help you help other veterans, but it's not about helping them. That's the secret sauce right there. So I was very outspoken against our suicide prevention weakness-based models and New York Army National Guard. Uh, I got an email from them a couple months later challenging me, saying, hey, can you give us an eight-minute long video? Okay. So I went out in the woods with my little iPhone, and I recorded 50 minutes of video, and I edited it down to eight. And basically, it comes down to the scenario of if you are in a, a fighting position and it's cold and you're just freezing, and we've all know what that's like. Yeah. It's just it's no fun. You can't feel your feet. And, and, and then somebody goes, hey, you, I'm going to let you go out of this, but all your buddies and friends get to do it. I mean, yeah, you want to get out of it, but, I mean, who wants other people to take care of your work? That's not our culture. We, we've got to pull our own weight. And— if it's got, you know, you're starting to get frostbite and things like this, and it's just so hard for you to deal with, who's going to really come up and say, hey, I think I'm not hacking this as well as other people are hacking it. Can I be excused from this hardship while everyone else goes through this hardship? Again, that's not us. No. Um, but as I've learned as an infantry instructor, there have been times when we're training hard. Um, it's, it's cold. I've had soldiers drop from hypothermia and hyperthermia on the same day. And Rylea, welcome to Rylea, <laughs> uh, on the same day where we would pause training. And one time we paused training. We went inside one of the buildings at the mountain zone. Everybody stripped of their wet clothing so they can retain body heat. So we're all standing basically naked while the medics brought us just lousy army hot chocolate, which was amazing. It was so good. And we all just sat there for like 30 minutes just almost naked drinking hot chocolate, warming up and, and, and stuff like that. And that was a pause. We, it's not that we didn't train hard. We put our wet uniforms back on, and we went right back at it. We had three days of FTX out in the field where we kept them awake all night long, patrol bases at whole nine yards. We just paused and got some hot chocolate. None of that meant these soldiers are weak. And if, if you go into the mentality that you can never, ever show weakness, you can never, ever, ever take a pause, that's just a recipe for disaster because I don't care who you are, something's going to give somewhere. At some point in time, you're going to at least get a physical injury, which is what you can see. Go find me somebody over the age of 40 that does not have a physical injury from the military. Find me one. I will wait. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> We've all got issues, right? We've all got problems and things that move. I mean, Army medic in Fort Bliss, he asked me to do a squat, and he was across the room. He looked at me and goes, I heard that, all of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I felt it Absolutely. too. Absolutely. <laughs> but the hot chocolate mentality was like instead of telling these soldiers, hey— are you broken? Let's deal with you. This is just, hey, let's just take a break for a second. Mm -hmm. Let's just drink some hot chocolate. You, you're going right back into the fight. You're not weak. This is not indicative of how you are unable to do anything. Just sometimes we just need a break. We just need to pause. Um, and so for me, the hot chocolate, that was it. Like instead, You're in this fighting position. It's cold. Instead of going, I can't hack this. Let me quit this away from everybody else. I'm going to bring you some hot chocolate, and this hot chocolate is just going to boost you up a little bit. It's amazing. There's a lot going on there because as a leader, then, you and the rest of the cadre recognized that the conditions were challenging and that people were were struggling, and in order to keep them in the fight, you had to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from the perspective of those trainees – I think they learned something about the leadership they had. Mm -hmm. Trust. And trust. 
it's a it's a hard it's a hard skill to learn. Um, the army says train like you fight, but sometimes we don't really do that. We we train softer. Uh, there's a lot of softness sometimes that comes into some of our army trainings. Um, uh, ruck marches and just overly cautious. Like the the Roman army of Vegetus, uh, V-E-G-E-T-I-U-S, wrote in 343 A.D. on military Roman military matters. And he talked about how to train the Roman army and such. And funny thing, it's universal. We're dealing with the same issues. One of the things he says is like, always have soldiers have something to do. Because <laughs> if not, there's going to be problems. So the Roman army would build roads. <laughs> they would build walls. <laughs> Because, like, we don't need a legion of Roman soldiers bored. Well, guess what? <laughs> Every leader <laughs> knows that. <laughs> right, right. But they would train with weapons, uh, wooden weapons and wooden shields that were twice the weight of their regular weapons on purpose. And then when they go into battle, everything was lighter. We do the opposite. We train with lighter gear. And then when we go to war, like, well, we better carry 10 batteries. You better carry this and this and this. You go into war in more difficult situations than what we train in. And when we go out into the field, it's not really the field. We'll sleep in warming shelters. We'll get there on bus. I'm like, we're infantry. You should walk there. Like, how far can we walk? How, the fact that we got soldiers that can't hump for, you know, 12 miles without passing out is problematic as an army. But... Knowing that, some people take that to the extreme. They forget that you just can't turn on a switch and be, you know, tougher. You go to the gym. Go to the CrossFit gym. All right, bam. Now go do the open. You know, go do Murph, and you just join the gym. Right, right. You do too much too soon you hurt with poor technique. It's a recipe for a certain injury, absolutely. If you go to a, a gym with a good uh, a CrossFit gym with a trainer, they're not going to let you jump into Murph right off the bat. They're not going to let you do some of these more difficult uh, things. They wouldn't even let me do overhead squats. Uh, they said, nope, you're not ready for it. That form is horrible. Mm. And I would have to do other things. I would have to. They would change my exercises to things that I could do because I'm a marathon runner, but I don't know anything about overhead squats. They hand you a piece of PVC pipe that weighs next to nothing. Right, because at, for them, I hate PVC pipes. I've done so many squats <laughs> with PVC pipes. Uh, it's amazing how hard an overhead squat with PVC pipe is. I'm sweating and grunting and cursing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But they they don't want numbers. They don't want 500 people in their gym. That's not how they measure success. They measure success, the coaches that I work with, on whether or not I can do this technique correctly. So me as, a, as an Army trainer, I'm not, I don't care about our numbers. That's not my job. My job is not numbers. That's, that's your job. You know, the, the, that's the officers and things like that. Like, what's our retention rates and stuff like that? My job is to train. So I need to push that soldier further than what that soldier thinks he can do, which sometimes they just want to give up. I'm like, nope, you can't mm -hmm. give up. I will not let you. But sometimes I've had those soldiers that will not stop, uh, and they will just keep going and keep going. I really appreciate that. That's what I need on Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the wisdom to understand that this is training. This isn't Omaha Beach. This is not a life or death situation. You need to learn how to stop. That's easy to do for me as, as an instructor, but that is infinitely harder with all the stuff that I know to do personally. Oh, absolutely. Well, and we tell we tell people this all the time in counseling and, well, it, it's common in redeployment briefings that I've given before too that if if something is going on with you, the people that are going to notice first will probably be the people that are closest to you. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so we should we, we need to learn to listen when people are telling us that hey we probably need to to make to make some changes, especially the spouses, right? right. If if you really want to know what's going on in, in your soldiers, uh, this is what I tell the police officers. Like if you want to know what's going on with the soldier, you can ask, but they're going to tell you a lie. Sometimes they're lying intentionally, but more often than not, they don't know. They have no idea that they're struggling with something because mm-hmm. we are so locked on a goal of never stop fighting, never quit going, never stop and take a pause or take a knee, never, 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 never quit. So we have no idea that we are struggling with something. So the lie is, is purely unintentional. I said, if you really want to know if somebody's struggling, you go talk to that spouse and mm-hmm. she'll tell you. <laughs> She'll tell every day, you know, this on Tuesdays and this, and whenever this happens, this happens. Like the family knows. They, there's this term that we call, call uh, walking on eggshells. And if you go talk to spouses of, of military that have deployed, they know that phrase very, very well. Every family knows the phrase walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, at OHSU, I used to work at OHSU and we did a study with spouses of veterans. And, and that's what we heard over and over and over again was that phrase, walking on eggshells. We have learned very well what to avoid and, and such, not to set off this veteran. And on the on the sad part of that is, the the spouse is typically I mean, a typical pattern for them is to work very hard to take care of that veteran, whatever it is. They just came back from deployment. Take him to the employment office. Take him to the VA appointment. Take him to whatever because maybe he can't drive. Uh, I know a lot of veterans that can't drive uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, and then after two years, they're burned out. They're absolutely burned out and exhausted, and they cannot continue any further. And then they're like, okay, I'm out. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And divorce rate mm-hmm. just goes to the roof. And then the VA did a study. I can't quote the, the source for you right now, but they did a study at one time looking at the reasons why male veterans go to therapy at the VA. And there's basically one reason. The other reasons were so low in number, they don't even, meant, they don't even count. It was one reason. The, these, these male veterans were given an ultimatum. You either go to therapy or I'm leaving you. That's it. That's it. And if you look at the veterans that Seligman talks about this, if you look at veterans that go to therapy at the VA for PTSD, just just that, the improvement rates are amazing. They get help. They get better until they get their their uh, their, their paycheck because their rating. Mm. Once they start getting that money for having PTSD, it drops to zero. Nobody returns to therapy. Nobody keeps going. They stop because I've got this paycheck. Why go? Which is unfortunate because I like. Don't you want a fulfilling life? Mm-hmm. Don't you want to have a, a wonderful marriage? Don't you want to be able to go and sit with your spouse at your kid's t-ball game, enjoy the moment, sitting in the sunshine with them, just happy as a lark, excited, watch your kid hit that ball, and just like a you know a little cocker spaniel run towards first base and all the other kids. And laugh and, and enjoy yourself. And then afterwards, go with that kid to Pizza Hut and enjoy the pizza and, and have all the kids running around and, as kids do, yell and scream and throw things and just be kids. And you, not for a second, get so angry that you feel like you have to hit something. But instead, laugh with those kids. Wouldn't you want that? Isn't that worth giving up that paycheck from the VA? Well, that, ab- absolutely. And of course, there's that. Uh, maybe it has to deal with that expectation. Circling back to learned helplessness and and well and and 
somebody I hope to to talk about some more at some point. Uh, psychologist named Ross Ellenhorn who's been developing an, an idea that he calls fear of hope, which I think is directly related to to that learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. But people need to, to get or receive or uh, learn how to develop that expectation that, so, that there is something better out there that I don't – that this – what's normal right now, it, it's not always going to be like this. Yeah, that – yeah, there's a lot to unpack right there. Now, you said something earlier, and I think maybe maybe this has import for the the team leader. And you you talked about team leaders getting to know their soldiers, and that that's irrespective of what type of unit you're in. Mm-hmm. First line leaders and developing that relationship and developing that trust, because we use that word trust earlier. And uh, trust is it's it's just like love. It doesn't work when you tell someone trust me. Or, or or love me, right? I can't I can't demand trust. I can't demand love. That has to be developed over time, and and demonstrated too. Um, I, I used to call it the well, and actually my colleagues in in the ministry will call it this too. The, the church fine when you see people once a week and you ask them how they're doing, <laughs> the, the answer is always uh, fine, pastor, right? And, and now their world could be falling apart around them, but they can hold it together for one hour on Sunday morning and and make it. You know, get dressed up, make it look like things are, mm-hmm. are fine. We see the same thing happen in the reserve component in the National Guard, the reserves all the time too, right? That somebody can hold it together for forty-eight hours on a drill weekend, maybe have their their uniform look good, uh, they're in the right place at the right time, but uh, have, facing some serious challenges on the outside. And you, if, you, if you just on Saturday morning ask them how they're doing. You check the block. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that soldier's doing fine. He told me he was doing fine, or she told me everything was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that that I mean, I would I would walk around in my platoon and I would say, "How are you doing there, Smugatelli? Doing fine, Sarge. All right, cool beans. Whoop de do." Uh, but the the Army Resiliency Program has some modules. Uh, active constructive responding is one of those modules, and uh, in the in this that we're the skill set that we're trying to teach is you ask open-ended questions. We have this, mm-hmm. you know, destructive, constructive responses that you give and stuff like that. And the example they would give all the time is like, hey, I would pick somebody in the audience. Guess what? I just got level 80 on my Night Elf Hunter in World of Warcraft. And more often than not, they look at me like, why do I care? Like, <laughs> you know, so ask me questions. And, and the point is that, like, I know you don't care about Warcraft, right? There's like maybe two of you in here that do, right? And we know who each other because we're nerds. But – that's not the point. You care about me. So ask me, like, what is a night elf? Tell me more. Okay, how long did it take you to reach level 80? And ask these opening questions just to get me to talking. Sure. You don't care about Warcraft, but you care about me. Um, so, and what that does is, like, well, in the back of your mind, whether or not you're aware of it or not, why is he asking me these questions? He, mm-hmm. must, he must care about me because he's asking me all these questions. That's way more than how are you doing. Hey, absolutely. What did you do this weekend? Or what did you do last weekend? We went picnicking. Oh, well, what was that like? Where'd you Where'd you guys go? Oh, uh, what'd you have for dinner? You know, what did me and my kid just did this thing? Well, tell me more about what you and your kid experienced. What you did today? That's the question that you ask uh, the soldiers and get them talking. And then over time, because I keep you keep asking them, they they eventually learn. Like, well, the reason why you know Sergeant Bob keeps asking these questions is because Sergeant Bob must care at some level. 
but that also gives you insight into how their life is going. And the team leaders especially should be doing that all the time because we're always hurry up and waiting. Mm-hmm. So there's time to ask. And so those those team leaders that are asking these open-ended questions like this and delving into the details, they start to feel nuances. They feel when somebody's a little bit off. Right. What's going on? And then they can they I've had that happen. They run it up to the squad leader and the squad leader team leader is knocking on my office like, "Hey, platoon sergeant, I something's off with Joe." Oh yeah, what's going on? Sudden so so forth. Okay, let's bring Joe in. Let's talk to him. Mm-hmm. And Joe's always embarrassed. The sergeant major major of the army, uh, Sergeant Major Grinston, mm-hmm. he's a great example of this. He said that he stopped asking the the new soldiers, the young soldiers that he meets. He he stopped asking. He has stopped asking them, uh, where where are you from? Because that's a one word answer, right? Red Wing, Minnesota. Well, that doesn't tell you any. That doesn't tell mm-hmm. you much. I've got to ask more questions. So now he said he asks, uh, how did you grow up? Oh wow, that's a great question. Right, because there's a narrative behind that, and there's there's a lot uh, there's there's a lot that goes into that, and mm-hmm. it's not it's not easily pushed off. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question, right there. Well, I, I can't think of a detail, but that remind the first part. Somebody just popped in my head as you said that was, uh, uh, I believe he's Colonel now, Colonel Riley, but he was my captain in Iraq, and uh, man, I have nothing but love for Colonel Riley. Called me right now and says. Hey, Ed, I know you're in retirement, but can you come out of retirement? I'm going to give you a stick. Follow me someplace. I'm going to roger that, sir. I'll go anywhere you need me. Uh, Because he had that level of interaction with his soldiers in Iraq. I mean, we grew to love him very much because of that. He he didn't have this mentality. There's another study. I keep referencing. There's another study that looked at cohesion. Cohesion is one of the biggest um, uh, helps, for lack of a better word, for stressors within the Mm -hmm. unit. So as cohesion goes up, they're much more resilient to negative things. Well, what are the uh, factors that go into cohesion? Well, one of those factors, one of the biggest factors is trust and leadership. Absolutely. And there's a study out there. I can send it to you. I've got it on digit somewhere uh, where there's basically let's put the leadership in two different types. You do it because I said so, and that's my rank, or we're part of this together. There was a study that the Army War College did to, and, and they put leaders, senior leaders, into four blocks. And it was if so and so called you up and asked you to come work for them, would it be no questions asked? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Would you would you hesitate and say, okay, well, I need to talk to my to my family, uh, or absolutely no way, or <laughs> I'll, you know I'll think about it. Right, one of those one of those four quadrants. And as another side note. Colonel uh, Eric Riley was my commander in Kosovo too. I was oh, his, I was nice. his chaplain for four years, so I, I love the man too. Uh, sir, if you're listening, uh, again, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I forgot where I was where I was going. Four uh, quadrants with of leaders, right? Yeah, and um, we talked about something too because uh, you mentioned you mentioned trust in leadership, and and as we as we've noted, that's that's not something that you can just demand. That has to be mm-hmm. demonstrated and built. As we were coming. Uh, into the studio this morning, uh, you were telling me about your history with the Marine Corps, and you mentioned uh, esprit de corps. So Brigadier General Day, he's the new land component commander for the Oregon Army National Guard, and that's he's he's asked that question about esprit de corps too. And and I don't know, maybe this is just a representative bias, right? But I I feel like we talked about esprit de corps a lot more frequently, maybe twenty twenty five years ago. I see that, yes. I think it's, it's, I don't know, it's hard to see that different perspective. 
pull myself out historically, but I, I think similar to what I think the messages was was of the recruiters that I was talking about in the car right up here about what I why I gravitated toward the Marine Corps, uh, whereas the other services emphasized jobs. And let me give you this awesome job and get a bonus. The Marine Corps was be part of something. Mm-hmm. And being a part of something is a message that I have not heard often, if at all, in the Army, um, except in various few cases. You know, why do you want to go to Rangers? So you can have the best schooling. No, you want to be a Ranger. I mean, find me better trained military in the United States military than Army Rangers. I mean, that's the best right there as far as I'm concerned. Or... Or uh, the, the brotherhood that I've seen in the Green Berets and people I know from who are former Green Berets and so, this, the same sort of thing, or parachuters, you know, um, all this other stuff. But is Army as a whole, I, I don't see it. Um, and that sort of mentality of, of belonging to something, I think we try to approach. And then as we get close to it, we're like, all right, go college bonuses <laughs> and other things. And I'm like, oh, we're almost there, man. But that's the reason why I joined. That's the reason why I signed up. And a lot of people that I know that have given their blood, sweat, and tears to the uniform, you don't work till 3 o'clock in the morning on a non-drill weekend to take care of military duty because, well, <laughs> i got to earn my, my college bonus, my GI Bill. That's not what gets you going. That's not what gets you up in the morning to be the, you know, uh, as a as a squad leader to, you know, call and check on everybody in your team. I have to earn my GI Bill. You know, you do it because you love that team, because of the 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 mission that we're doing, mm-hmm. um, the 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 impact that we're having, whatever that mm-hmm. that is. I mean, just just wait a couple of months. Somebody that working in Army National Guard is going to be doing something positive somewhere. You know, it's, it's almost summertime. Forest fires are coming. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> well, they're doing it right now. We we have hundreds of soldiers that are working at vaccination sites. Uh, oh, I was there uh, yesterday a, across yeah. the state. Yeah, and I visited. Uh, had the opportunity to visit some of our soldiers and airmen at, at the Deschutes County Fairgrounds, and uh, almost to a person, they are incredibly positive about the work that they've been doing. Now you'll hear it's 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 challenging. There are long hours. The work is redundant, but. Uh, here they see absolutely uh, the meaning and the purpose of of what they're doing, why why they wear the uniform, mm-hmm. and uh, while I've made the comparison between the the work that our our soldiers and airmen are, are people that our people are doing at these vaccination sites and the two eleven call center, we have, we have airmen and soldiers working there too. They see a a connection between what they're doing and uh, and and the service that they bring to their community and. Uh, the connection that I made is to the work that we were doing in Kosovo. So the the NATO mission in Kosovo, K4, is more than 22 years old now, 20 uh, coming up. Uh, yeah, we're just, we're just over 22 years old. But still, everywhere that I went in Kosovo, when they saw that American flag on my right shoulder, I would – you'd hear just incredible expressions of gratitude and thanks. And I had a – became friends with a uh, a Christian pastor there in Kosovo and he shared the story of uh, being displaced and in a refugee camp and he saw the NATO helicopters fly over and – that when they got the word that they could go back to their villages, it was it it was absolutely incredible. So those images and those experiences are seared in their memories. And here, twenty two years later, uh, they're they're thankful for K four and and NATO and the U S because of the hope that that presence brings. And I see I hear a lot of the same things from our airmen and our soldiers that are working with the 
vaccination sites across the state too that uh, they see members of their community come in and they see them in uniform and they've been waiting for months to get that vaccine. They've been waiting for over a year for things to return to some semblance of normalcy. And so it, now here there's something that they can latch onto that gives them hope that uh, that, that things are going to get better in, in the future. And so the men and women that are serving in those capacities are, are really fired up to do that mission because they see the purpose and, and they see – uh, immediately the impact that it's having. And it's, so I think to, to circle back to a couple of the topics that we've, that we've been talking about, um, the, the men and women in our formations, the, the people that we, that we serve in the Oregon National Guard, um, they, they, as leaders, we can absolutely help them see the purpose in what they're doing. You know, even if it's a, a home station drill, or, or it's an annual training where part of it's, you know, it's home station and there's a lot of maybe administrative or other things that we, ha- that we have to do. It's up to us to, <laughs> right, to, it's, it's up to us to help them see the, the purpose or the, the greater meaning when, uh, you know, when they're pushing the mop on the, on the drill floor. That is uh, so hard. I'll push them up any day long, but come on. Had to JKO one more time so I can take a dumb training on JKO. For the seventh time, oh man, that right there, it can be hard to see where this where this fits, right? Um, but and then to but to feel like you're part of something that's bigger than yourself and and that has meaning for 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 your community, uh, for for your country. I, and I think on that that meaning, I think a big part of that is uh, just the suck factor too. I mean. It's one thing. I mean, the soldiers are going to complain, so you can't grade anything based on complaint levels. But you have to give them hardships. That's why you join the army. Huh. I mean, few people's like I didn't expect things to be easy. That's why I joined the army. Yeah. So you, when we do our hardest drills out in the in the field, and it's just I mean, it's seven degrees outside, and your sleeping bag is frozen, and and stuff like that. There are so many complaints, but yet when we do the AARs afterwards and the anonymous rate the drills and how was it. It's through the roof. Mm-hmm. People love it. One of my favorite drills that we've ever did at Charlie Company in Gresham, this is way back in 2006, is that we got an alert Friday afternoon, be at the Army. Now, what? Huh? When does this ever happen? Who's invading us? And we all showed up. They passed out rifles. The, uh, uh, the three platoons were given different um, uh, responsibilities and stuff. I was second squad leader at the time. And so we had, we had a FOB. Uh, this is before we added some of the gates. So we created a, a front gate, back gate. We had roving patrols. It freaked out the civilians in the area. They're like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we're like, looking for zombies. You know. And then we had that, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. We're just, we're just training. But we did range estimations out in parking garages in Gresham and all sorts of stuff. We got very little sleep for the whole time. And then we cut it out uh, mid-afternoon Sunday and kind of like cleaned everything up and like that. We, it was hard. It was cold. It was February. It was raining sideways, but we loved it. Holy cow, that was so good. So in the strengths-based training, you have to give people – that's part of the, op, you know, the optimism uh, is you have to have this this faith that you can get through it. Well, how do I know I can get through this? It's part of the other cohesion thing earlier. How do I know I can get through this? Well, General Mattis talks about this in his book, uh, Call Sign Chaos, mm-hmm. and in uh, Desert Storm, great book. Uh, it talks about how they would just train over and over and over again, and then – one of the things that he was noticing that people were still kind of hesitancy before the big invasion and such. So he did a demonstration of their uh, first aid. 
uh, all the medical facility uh, uh, evacuation and stuff like that in front of the entire battalion. They all had, there you go. They made their own little stadium. And he ran through these procedures in front of them. And they all like, ah, they will take care of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will see this. And so that, Mm -hmm. that, that the others that I'm depending upon will take care of me if something happens to me. And also, I've been training with this Marine here day in and day out for months. So they know what they're doing because I see them. They, I know what I'm doing because I've done this a million times. That builds an optimism and let's meet whatever challenge we can. So and if it goes sideways, I got faith in the people behind me to take care of me. So that's another reason why that drive the dog 20 times over is so important. Because if a soldier has an issue, but yet you do not ever for a second slow down on getting attention to them and making sure they are taken care of and calling and double checking and triple checking. And hey, I know it's been six months, but just want to make sure you're still doing fine. Because everything is taken care of. That builds faith. That builds support. And when you tell it, you know, you tell an NCO you're going to get them to, uh, 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 an army school, do it mm-hmm. <laughs> and double check and don't lie. <laughs> but we see people do that. Don't just just work hard. And as you work hard to get them chow or whatever it is, then they get more faith into you. That's why we joined the army <laughs> to do this. Well, absolutely. But that optimism that you describe is not a naive optimism, right? It's you're not just wishing away bad circumstances. Right. Or, or challenges and you're not uh, – right. You, you can't wish away failure to train. You can't wish away failure to prepare mm-hmm. or, or resource. Uh, but, you're doing, but you're doing all those things and it's and – it, like you said, it's, it's, it's built on the trust that you have with the people that are to your left and to your right and, and your, your leadership as well too. Is if you look at optimism and, and hope in, in philosophy, there's a lot of arguments – it's useless. <laughs> it's not useless. Even the philosophers like, say, Nietzsche or uh, mm-hmm. Albert Camus or uh, Schopenhauer. Uh, Schopenhauer, you know, is listed as one of the most depressing <laughs> philosophers out there. He's one of my favorites. Uh, but they will often say, like, hope is delusional or hope is delusional uh, because if you looked at the reality of the situation, you can either impact it or you can't. And to hope is just deluding yourself. And I've had that. I've had people say that to me. It's like, that goes back to that learn helplessness thing. Mm-hmm. What good am I amongst this chaos? Uh, to, was it Red Badge of Courage? I mean, I've read so many books. What, all's quiet on the western front. Anyway, but somebody said the same thing. Uh, like, what good am I amongst these millions of soldiers in these trench lines? How, what in the world? Yeah, it, I, I am just an insignificant speck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what they're saying. They're, they're, they're saying the very same thing that these philosophers are saying. Well, we have to also remember, too, that philosophers aren't they, – they, they are very critical on the distinction between cognitive thoughts and passions of the mind, as some of the older philosophers say, mm-hmm. or the moving spirits, as Descartes would say, or things like this. But what they – even the ones that are against hope, that it's delusional and you need just to see reality for what it is, they will also say elsewhere, even Camus, uh, even Schopenhauer, all of them will say that there is a motivational aspect to it. Absolutely, because they're not mm-hmm. – all those guys, they're not walking around as if they are hopeless all right. the time. Right, but right. So the motivational aspect, this motivational aspect is a cognitive uh, – is it a, a passion thing, is it say, an emotional mm-hmm. feeling. It's not a thought. It's a, it's a feeling. You feel like doing it, just like January 1st. You feel like going to the gym. February 1st, eh, I feel like watching Netflix. All right? But that motivational feeling, well, that's the opposite of depression. Depression isn't feeling sad. Depression is having no motivation. 
And so when you have somebody that has major depressive disorder, it is an absolute victory for them to get out of the bed. Oh, yeah, to go walk the dog. Just to yeah. get up and yeah. clean themselves. Okay, mm-hmm. now you're in the military and you are a culture of, you know, you're a go-getter, especially senior enlisted and officers who are expected to be go-getters and to be in charge. Those individuals, when they fall in depression, is even harder for them to get out mm-hmm. because if anybody should be able to get up and plan my day, I should. I'm mm-hmm. a doggone platoon sergeant. I'm the general, you know. So those individuals right there are very susceptible to depression and if they don't have a support system. So the depression is you can't even get up and, and get moving. Well, that's what the philosophers say is like, Hope can it can work. So mm-hmm. how do you do that? And so going to the Stoics, when they say the Stoics, so the, the thoughts that go into your mind all the time, you have fifty thousand of those thoughts, right? Right, all the time. Your your brain is constantly going. People don't believe me, and so okay, well, let's sit and meditate for ten minutes. I promise you, you're going to have a million thoughts. You can't help it. Mm-hmm. I med- I try to meditate every day, if not more than that, just to tune in those thoughts and to see what those negative tape loops are. How often do you berate yourself? for something small. And so if you're constantly berating yourself for little things, then you're telling yourself that you're going to fail all the time. Eventually, what your go-to attitude, your go-to motivation is, why bother? Why even try? Absolutely. So you had to change that tape loop. You had to plug into it. So we're sitting just over an hour right now. Um, (laughs) I didn't want to interrupt you guys. So want to keep it two episodes probably want to wrap it up um but if you feel like there's more to say we can keep going and might have to make it three episodes but (laughs) Uh, so uh yeah (laughs) well i do have one more thing i'll ask you about um yeah let's maybe make it uh two should we go for two because yeah how are we doing on time yeah and you're gonna you're gonna have uh, to wrap it up we're good chaplain i just um i actually felt like kind of where you guys were kind of coming through right there on the end of that last little bit it was could be a good way to kind of close back to like a, a close out, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, like a way to close everything out. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I think I can, yeah, I think I can put a bow on it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just going to answer a text, but we're still recording, so feel free to go ahead. Okay. So we've been talking about hope, and of course, Eddie, I'm going to have to have you back on <laughs> uh, Hope in the Trenches. Just there's there's more more books and more philosophers and psychologists that we could talk about. Last week when we were getting ready to, to – well, when we started prepping to talk about recording this episode, you told me that you carry around a scrap of paper in your wallet with a Latin phrase on it, Schmeim semper habemus. And now that, that might become the motto for this podcast. What is, what is Schmeim semper habemus and what does that mean? Well, I used to carry it in my, my wallet. I don't anymore because I don't carry a wallet, but I have it engraved on my back of my iPad. So there it says right there, Spem Semper Habemus. And I learned it when I was taking, I came across it when I took Latin at University of Houston back in the 90s. And Spem Semper Habemus is basically we always have hope. Uh, habemus, mus, plural possessive, but we always have hope. Mm-hmm. And to mean, just psychologically speaking, philosophically, I mean, I'm a philosopher, I'm a psychologist, I have degrees in both and so on and so forth. But sometimes at the end of the day, you just want to sit down and, you know, just take the load off, not think so much, not try to figure out life. And and sometimes, you know, it's just good for somebody to sit next to you and goes, hey, man, it'll be all right. Mm-hmm. You just need that. And it's what your friends do. Ed, you're working hard. You know what? It'll be all right. 
that just gets me through the day. Now, later on, when I get some coffee in my system, I'm like, let's tear that apart. Philosophically <laughs> speaking, what do you mean by it? You know, but yeah. for that moment, I'm tired. And that moment right there, I, can't, I don't want to think about Schopenhauer. I don't want to think about the research that, you know, Stanford's done on this. Yeah, don't think about Camus. Uh, uh, yeah, no, yeah, he's hard to read. Uh, or any of that, I just need for a second just to take a breather. And that spim semper habemus for me, and sometimes there have been times where I'm like, man, I've been unemployed for like nine months. I've had like odd jobs. I've worked some very hard jobs just to put food on the table. Sometimes all I can afford is cat food to feed my cat. That's it. And I just feel like giving up right now. But then I see that little phrase is, spim semper, we always have hope. Like, what the heck is hope? You know, and hope is... Is is a is an anxiety connected to it because you want something to be different than what it currently is? You that you want a better outcome that's coming, but then there's somewhere between infinity never and infinity possible. Mm-hmm. There is the smallest pers- chance, it's the very smallest chance, and sometimes that little bit is, is like in the movie Dumb and Dumber. I would never go out with you unless you were the last man on the earth. And he goes, so you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. And we always do have hope. And, of course, that's that's right in my wheelhouse. And that's what I, I try to encourage our chaplains to, to communicate and, and, and every leader uh, to consider themselves as an agent of hope and someone that can, can, can bring that, hot, that cup of hot chocolate to someone. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time today, Eddie. It's been great having you on. I, I, absolutely. I, I appreciate the opportunity. And if I could, I'd tell one story with a chaplain. That I, I don't know, it just it resonates with me and it stuck with me and it, it, it gave me trust. Please do. Um, we were in Iraq, we were doing a company level um, a mission. Uh, we had phase lines, we had other companies or, or platoons doing things, but third platoon was way on the left hand side and third squad, my squad, was way on that side. So to my right, the entire company. To my left, bad guys. It's dark, <laughs> it's zero dark 30. And so I'm sitting there, I'm scanning, okay, where's my guys at? What's going on here? Listening to the radio, just trying to make sure that everything was good to go in the whole nine yards. And then I hear this, all right? And I'm standing outside our Humvee, our Humvee's parked. I'm standing, and somebody just tapped in our Humvee, is walking in. I'm standing outside, I look around, and I see this young E5, and he's like crouched, and his eyeballs are white, and he's looking all over the place. That was the chaplain's assistant. And it was Chaplain Thompson mm-hmm. at the time. And he goes, hey, guys, you mind if I give you guys a prayer? Sure. And then he gave us a quick prayer, and he went to the next Humvee. And I was like, man, that guy is awesome. Like, he's out here in bad country giving us a, a prayer. I was like, man, the chaplain's doing that? That's mm-hmm. pretty cool, this guy. I worked with him years later. I told him that story. I told him that, he's like, I've done that a million times. Right? Mm-hmm. But he's appreciative. But that gave, me, that gave me trust in the organization, that right there, that, okay, if the chaplain's doing that, what else is the rest of my battalion doing to mm-hmm. take care of me and, and stuff like that. It may seem insignificant, but, you know, that had an impact on me, not just for him personally, but for, for the organization and how I felt towards the organization. So, you know, do what you can do. Who knows? You know, it ripples out. Good, good, good expands. It does. It does. Thanks for sharing that story. And thanks again for being here. This has been another episode of Hope in the Trenches. This podcast is produced by the Oregon National Guard Public Affairs Office. My prayer for you is that wherever you find yourself, that you might find hope for today and strength for the ambiguity and chaos of life. Blessings on the rest of your day.